Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Former Liberal Federal Justice Minister and Solicitor General Erwin Kotler is urging the Magnitsky-style sanctions against the Chinese Communist Party, officials who covered up the early COVID-19 outbreak. Um, Mr. Kotler joins us. He's the founder also of the Raoul Walden, Wallenberg Center for Human Rights in Montreal. Mr. Irwin, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm a talent. Good speaking with you. What do you consider the Chinese actions to be or the action of certain members of the Xi government, if they, with intent, withheld information critical to the health of the world's population and now the global economy, and a study by the University of Southampton in England suggests 95% of the world's COVID-19 infections could have been prevented if China had informed the world sooner, um, how would you define the behavior by these government officials in Beijing? Well, they're clearly responsible uh, for the uh, global spread of the virus through their uh, suppression of information, uh, the silencing of, of doctors and, and, and dissidents, and indeed their imprisoning and disappearance of some doctors and dissidents, and the false and misleading uh, global disinformation campaign that they have been waging uh, to cover it up and, in fact, even uh, blame the victims, be it Italians or the U.S., and, and the like. In a way, this, this is uh, China's Chernobyl moment because it's a self-inflicted wound, but which has regrettably, you know, engulfed the international uh, community. As that uh, British study at the University of Southampton has said, 95% of these in- infections might well have been uh, prevented had uh, China disclosed the information when it knew it a month earlier. And Dr. Ai Fen, interestingly enough, she's uh, the director of emergency medicine at Wuhan Hospital. She sought to uh, share this information with uh, eight of her uh, medical colleagues. Uh, she is, and this was back in early December, she was herself uh, disappeared. Uh, Dr. Lee, one of those uh, with whom she shared uh, the information, was emerged as a hero because he himself also tried to convey uh, the information as a whistleblower, having gotten it from the whistle giver, uh, one might say. And then, tragically, uh, he died of the uh, coronavirus. And that's why a leading public intellectual in China, Professor Zhu Zhangren, has said that, and speaking about the, the government, that they themselves uh, not only are responsible for the virus, but he made a very interesting comparison. He said that the people in China have been ravaged by both the pandemic virus and the virus of the political system. It's interesting you say that because there were there were reports uh, that something in the neighborhood of 180 million social uh, media messages had been circulating in China, and uh, the Chinese government then took action to close down those social media sites. But you're suggesting, uh, Mr. Irwin, as Professor Irwin, and you're the former justice minister of this country, that Canada engaged Magnitsky-style sanctions against specific Chinese government officials who silenced those whistleblowers. 
you were talking about. What specifically can be done? What are you saying should be done specifically? Well, uh, there's a number of things that could be done. I, I referenced the Magnitsky sanctions because uh, Canada was the uh, third country to have adopted uh, Magnitsky uh, sanctions, which are intended not against a particular uh, country or government, but against specific individuals who have been involved in uh, gross violations of human rights, which has been the case here uh, with not only, as I say, the suppression of information, but the silencing, imprisoning, disappearing of doctors and others uh, who sought to uh, sound the, uh, the alarm. And Canada has, in fact, uh, implemented such sanctions against the leadership in, in Venezuela, uh, against Russians engaged in human rights violations. So what can we what can we do though? What what power do we have under this legislation? We have that power with, under that legislation to specifically uh, sanction those individuals who have been uh, responsible uh, for the uh, criminal uh, in this instance what I would call the criminal violations of, of human rights through the suppression of information and the silencing of distance and the others. We know who they are. Uh, we could name them. Uh, we can apply the sanctions. When this pandemic is over, there, of course, will be, uh, I think, opportunities for government-to-government accounting. Uh, as we're speaking, uh, a number of lawyers in the U.S. have initiated a class action uh, lawsuit in, in, in this regard. Uh, there's mm-hmm. also initiatives that can be taken under the uh, health regulations, under the WHO uh China would be responsible here as a government in that regard. So there are a variety of initiatives that can be taken. The okay. important thing is, and it references what you said, the truth needs to be told in the sense that the brave Chinese citizens who have been imprisoned need to be supported. And the Communist Party leadership must be held accountable through naming and shaming in the court of public opinion, in courts of law through international tort action, or in Magnitsky sanctions, as I mentioned. Professor Irwin, you know, and you, you pointed out, that China is pushing back vigorously in an aggressive campaign to challenge anyone who speaks as you are now speaking, and uh, scientists and politicians internationally increasingly are doing that, and uh, China is describing such accusations as sinophobic. Our federal minister of health rebuked a reporter for raising the issue. Are you disappointed in Mr. Trudeau? Prime Minister's refusal to directly challenge China on these allegations? Well, I, I, you know, Canada is in a delicate position because we've got our two Michaels now imprisoned uh, in China, and we're also the recipient of uh, and purchased certain PPE protective equipment. Uh, so I suspect that the government during the course of this uh, pandemic wants to deal uh, at this point first and foremost with the pandemic and then uh, when this pandemic can be uh, resolved, uh, can then attend to the other matters that I've raised, and, and whether it be Magnitsky uh, sanctions, uh, one can prepare the ground for that matter because it does. It's a legal process; it takes time, but right. one can prepare the ground for that, as well as any initiatives that may want to be taken under international uh, treaties and the like. I think we should also appreciate that all this has resulted from what has been a long-standing a state-sanctioned culture of criminality and corruption in China and an impunity which underpins it. I mean, as we speak, you know, we shouldn't forget 
that China has referred often to what they call the five poisons in its uh, repression of Tibetans and Uyghurs and Falun Gong and Hong Kong, uh, let alone that it's not that well known uh, that yeah, Professor Irwin, we'll have to pick that up. We'll have to pick up that conversation another time. And I know that you're deeply involved with human rights issues globally uh, through the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. Thank you for joining us today. As usual, it's uh, it's the clock that stops us, but uh, we will see where this goes. And it's disturbing to think that we have to be careful what we say as a, or our government says and does because we're dependent on China for PPE and other supplies that we require for the pandemic. That speaks volumes about where we are and where we shouldn't be. Professor Kotler, thank you so much for the time. Good talking to you. You've been hearing in the last week particularly that in Sweden there has been no national lockdown. It just hasn't happened. And there was a story su- suggesting that in Italy, where the, uh, where the where there is a national lockdown, and uh, when you take Italian cases, uh, COVID-19 cases, 19 cases reported on a daily basis and adjust for population, that Sweden has a 30% lower rate of infection than Italy. I don't know if that still holds true today, but joining us on the program is Professor Stefan Lindberg, a political science professor at Gothenburg University in Sweden. Professor Lindberg, thank you for taking the time. And uh, why did Sweden make the decision to not lock down the country over COVID-19, as other European countries have done, as we're doing in Canada and uh, as they've done in the United States, although President Trump keeps talking about re-energizing the, the economy. Why, why was the decision made in Sweden? Well, thanks for having me on the show. Um, happy to be here and happy to speak to Canadians who we think of as uh, a family of, of like-minded North Europeans, more or less. Uh, so it's great to be on the show. Um, Thank you. The, uh, the strategy in Sweden... I think, I mean, it basically is the same as most countries, which is to lower the spread of infections as much as possible. Uh, I I don't think any uh, epidemiologist uh, uh, seriously believe that it can be stopped, as some people talk about it. Uh, But you have to reduce the rate of the spread of infections. And um, uh, based on sort of all the science available to our national health authority and, and the chief uh, epidemiologist, uh, things like locking down the entire country, uh, putting people up in their own homes and uh, you know, closing down of the schools and so on, uh, would not be uh, very effective other than on the margin. Um, and, and, and therefore, these measures were not taken. So what's it like, though? Are the stores open? Is life going on in Sweden as it regularly has? Although I would imagine the people of Sweden are probably engaging in physical distancing, as is happening here. But what is daily life like? Has it changed much? Well, it's changed radically. So some of the stories that you've seen on on North American media, I haven't been following Canadian media that much, but say American media, I think are greatly exaggerated. there's been a tremendous change. Uh, everyone who can work from home works from home since about a month. Um, and a lot of uh, 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 social services and things have been uh, greatly affected uh, in terms of uh, lots of security measures to, to try and prevent this, the, the spread of the disease. Um, and uh, uh, high schools and universities uh, all went to uh, uh, distance learning and so on and so forth. 
And then, of course, with the international, uh, almost complete lockdown of all travels, um, that has affected many people's uh, jobs and plans in, in many ways. And then, but, but yes, school, uh, sort of regular schools uh, are open, daycare is open, uh, and uh, regular shops are open. Uh, restaurants are open, but have a requirement to keep uh, uh, customers apart. Um, and and uh, people have, have minimized their sort of physical social contact as much as, as possible, uh, in particular with regards to the elderly, of course. Is this a political issue at all? Is it, do you have political parties in Sweden who are opposed to the no lockdown, who are challenging the government, or is everybody fair, fairly much on side? Yeah, it's been among uh, the the political parties represented in the legislature. It's been an almost complete backup of the government behind the judgment of the health authorities uh, with regards to these measures. I've been some discussions on the margins here and there, but but broadly, there's been a big, a lot, very sort of wide and 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 deep consensus about this. What's your infection rate like today? If you compare it to last week, and most of us started to hear about no lockdown in Sweden about a week ago, what's your infection rate like? Is it going up significantly? Is it uh, is it is it is it um, stand? I mean, is it unchanged? What's it like? <laughs> so this is one of the things that I think uh, uh, people have learned more about and and should learn even more about. Uh, all these exponential graphs that that are circulating on social media, and, and I'm sure everybody in Canada has seen at least ten different versions of them. Um, they are inherently unreliable in the sense that we don't know. No country, except maybe South Korea, Taiwan, um, have a very good sense of the actual spread in the population because we haven't been testing. Right, and there is no reliable test of antibodies, so we don't know how many people have had the infection and not even noticed and have antibodies for it. Um, we don't know the extent to which the the, the COVID-19 generates antibodies and for how long. Um, so there are lots of uncertainties here. We 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 roughly know the the death rates, although the way countries count even deaths related to COVID-19 are very, very different, right? So in, in some countries, Italy and, and I think France, and I know um, uh, uh, others, they don't count people dying in elderly homes. And some national systems are not very good at reporting deaths at all. Right. all. Um, and, and other countries like Sweden count uh, all of them, and regardless of whether it happens, what about the national registry. So, so it's very, very difficult. Um, what what we do know in Sweden is that the 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 death rates have leveled off and even gone down slightly if you take sort of three to seven day averages. I saw All right. A, Let me ask you this. Today. Yeah. What about your economy? What about the Swedish economy? If you contrast it with countries in Europe where they have had a lockdown or anywhere in the world, you know, um, first world countries, for lack of a better term, uh is the Swedish economy benefiting from the no official lockdown? And, and then by extension, what about your small business community, which in this country, the small business community is terribly concerned about what its future prospects are. And what about in Sweden? Yeah. I mean, this concerns me a lot, uh, looking at a global scale. 
uh, I think the effects of the lockdowns and the travel bans uh, and these draconian measures taken across the world uh, risk being much worse in terms of people's health and lives uh, than the actual virus. In the latest figures I saw in Sweden, we are slightly better off if we compare it to our uh, our neighbors in, in among the Nordic countries that have had lockdowns and still have them to to a large extent, so Denmark, Norway, and Finland, then uh, uh, the the decrease in economic activity in Sweden is about half compared to them, right? So uh, around 28% instead of sort of 40 to 60%. Um, so 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 that's slightly less worse. <laughs> for Sweden, but it's, 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 very, um, it's very radical in the way the economy has been affected here too. And, and especially for small business owners, although the government has put together these packages to support them and, and, and with loans and, and banks and direct support and all kinds of things, um, it's still going to have very grave consequences. We have about 45 seconds, Professor Lindbergh. The people of Sweden themselves, is there polling taking place, I would imagine? Uh, and are, are the people of Sweden satisfied with the no official lockdown? Are they happy with the way things are now? Or is there uh, a call among a considerable percentage of people in Sweden for more of a lockdown than, uh, than, the, than they're living with? Uh, by all indications, there is uh, a very widespread support for the current policy and the current way of handling the crisis. The confidence in the government has gone up enormously. Um, in, in the opinion polling ratings and okay. uh, so so uh, there is there's no sizable opposition to it in the right. position as far as I can discern. Professor Lindbergh, thank you so much for joining us. It's Sunday evening for you and I appreciate you joining us on the on a weekend evening. Take good care. Dan Kelly is back with us, the president, CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Dan, thank you for coming back. Thanks for making time every weekend. Happy to be here. And uh, Hope Chick is a garage owner in Edmonton. Ms. Chick, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to join us. I appreciate being uh, invited on. And I understand your husband is also a small business owner. Yeah, we have a total of two um, small family-owned businesses, uh, one directly working in the oil and gas sector, and, of course, the garage very dependent on the health um, of the of the oil and gas sector here in Alberta. And you would be, I would imagine, like all the other entrepreneurs in this country, people who have taken everything that you have, invested everything that you have in your business, in your dream, in your, uh, in, in your, in your, in your desire to, to have an independent business and create employment in your community. I would imagine that's the case, right? Everything that you have has gone into this. Oh, 100%. Um, I would say that, you know, after the last five years in Alberta, we have invested everything that we have. Um, to keep both businesses viable, um, to continue to employ employees in this province. Um, you know, our, our personal cash reserves are depleted. Um, we've dipped into our retirement funds. We've depleted the, most of the operating cash, if not all of the operating cash in both businesses. And we're pretty much living on credit, uh, which at this point is also, um, you know, reaching its limits. And how much help is the government's intervention uh, being to you, been to you so far? And what do you see coming your way from the government in the next weeks and months, perhaps? Hopefully, it's not going to be months. 
Yeah, so relative to um, the amazing work that CFIB has been doing in terms of getting our message across to um, uh, government, I do feel like um, a lot of the initiatives that have come forward will definitely help. Um, and I qualify for everything that has been brought forward um, from um, the government. So I do qualify for the 75% wage subsidy. Um, and I also have um, applied and qualify for the loans um, for the $40,000 loans with the uh, 25% grant um, up to $40,000. I applied for it um, a week ago Friday. I've not heard um, whether I've been successful in getting that loan. Um, I would like to bring my employees back on the 75% wage subsidy, but without cash um, to, to meet my payroll requirements, I won't be able to do that. So, you know, to answer your question quite simply, we need cash. So um, the sooner that these loans and grants can come forward, um, the sooner that I can get my business back open and running. Because I think if I can do that, um, I can I can come out of this. Um, but without those loans, we're we're um, we're unable to do that. So Dan Kelly, give us a sense based on uh, what Hope just told us about what she's facing and what she needs and what her concerns are. How does that mirror what's happening in the rest of the country as far as the small business community is concerned? What do we need to what do we need to know today, Dan, as opposed to what you were able to share with us last weekend? Well, look, uh, as as sad and as stressful as as Hope's environment is, uh, I got to tell you that she's one of the lucky ones. Uh, I'm sure that's hard to believe. But uh, there are many, many other firms that unfortunately are not qualifying for the programs that have been set up for relief by government uh, because they're either too small, they're micro-sized, they're brand new, uh, or perhaps they are unincorporated. There's a whole bunch of rules and conditions for each of these programs. The good news, of course, is that there are thousands of firms that are qualifying, but it's just not enough. I mean, business owners are happy to have money to support them in paying their wages, but as Hope rightly pointed out, that doesn't help you very much if you just don't have the cash to do it. And the applications for the wage subsidy aren't going to start until the end of April. We expect the money to flow in early May. Uh, and it's at that stage that I think some businesses that are able to hang on to employees will get a little bit of relief. The, w- the, one, the one bright spot is the Canada Emergency Business Account. That $40,000 loan can be used for a variety of things. 10000 of that you don't have to repay. And the money has started to flow. We've talked to several thousand businesses that have qualified and are now getting that money, and that's been a real lifeline to, to some, others that don't qualify. The big thing that uh, that we're working on this week is support for rent. 75% of small businesses rent a location. And, of course, if, you're loca- if your business is closed, you're still having to come up with the, uh, the average of $10,000 a month for your rental location for a business that isn't allowed to open. So those bills have not been taken away. Yes, some landlords have been kind enough to defer the rent, but ultimately they are going to have to be paid. And uh, and the federal government announced this week that it is looking to work with provinces to try to support just that. Back to uh, Dan Kelly, the president and CEO of the uh, Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and Hope Chick, who's a garage owner in Edmonton. And worried about uh, her small business, as her husband is worried about uh, the, uh, the the energy business that he owns. Entrepreneurs who put their money into their community, who hire locally. And again, we're going to keep telling you this because it's so significantly important. And it better be front and center in Mr. Trudeau's mind. 60% of jobs are created by small business in this country. 
Let us uh, uh, let's get back to uh, Hope Chick. Hope, when you uh, when do you have to have the money? Can you? How long can you hold out between today and when that money that you've applied for starts to flow into your bank account? Um, it's a really good question, and um, you know, prior to uh, the crisis that we're in as a result of the pandemic. Um, we were probably living month to month and then eventually day to day as the, the last five years have played out here in the province. Um, and due to like the fixed costs over the last um, few weeks of, of not operating to full capacity, um, my, my total income, I just I printed the statement before I left this shop the last time we were open, we're down 88% in terms of total income. So in order for me to even think about reopening and getting our feet back on the ground, I need cash tomorrow um, to be able to meet some of my creditor demands in terms of the vendors and suppliers I have. Um, The bulk of them have put us to COD as a result of our accounts being past um, the term of payment. So in order to even do work, we need money to open our accounts up and get our supplies moving so that we have the supplies to complete the jobs that we could potentially be doing. Dan, how's this all going to play out? If the situation is as you describe, and clearly we know what the government has said, uh, how do you, what's the best case scenario in two, three, four, five weeks? Well, look, I I can't see any pathway where there aren't tens of thousands of businesses that that close their doors for good uh, at the end of that. And even that's that's the optimistic view uh, with uh, with the with the numbers that we're hearing from small businesses. Many of them have started that process right now are wrapping up their businesses because they you know, they were in they were having some tough times even before COVID-19. And now this is pushing them over the edge. Uh, but to go months and months without a business income is incredibly challenging. And that's why, you know, we're starting to turn our attention at CFIB to, to asking government for a very orderly plan to allow businesses to, to open up. I, I want to be clear. I'm not suggesting that we're demanding that businesses open fully tomorrow. What we are saying, and that we ignore the advice of medical offices of health. But many businesses are saying, look, if Costco can open and Walmart can open and still sell frying pans and T-shirts, then why can't a small with lineups of customers and do that in an orderly way with social distancing, protection for the employees, then these very small businesses, why can we not take appropriate measures to have a few customers come in in an orderly way? And that's, I think, the advice that we're trying to work on with government right now is to say, okay, maybe not today, but you're gonna, if this is going to be the new norm for some time, you've got to allow a heartbeat of activity in these small and medium-sized companies who can, in many cases, do a much better job of limiting crowds than the large multinational companies that have been allowed to open up because they, they keep a grocery aisle. So we're, we're working on that right now, doing it obviously very carefully, but we've got to start thinking about what this is happening. And the reason that I have some optimism is we're seeing some of that in, in Europe right now. Germany is allowing the smallest of, of small businesses to open first, and then they're going to be ratcheting that up over time. That's the kind of, that's the message that we need, obviously, to work on with public policymakers as we get through this, in addition to beefing up the supports. I mean, all of these programs were designed for businesses that might be shut down for a couple of weeks and then can go back to normal. But it's been over a month that businesses have been shut down. And in most parts of Canada, there's there's no early sign of that going to ease in, in days. It looks like several more weeks before that's the earliest before that happens. 
some businesses are not going to make it. They're just not. And and look, that, I mean, I represent entrepreneurs. Business failures are a normal part of things. What is the real crime here is that uh, that we have healthy businesses uh, that that were that that should be able to make it that through no fault of their own are having to close their doors to protect society. And it's deeply unfair that we ask those entrepreneurs who are doing this to protect society under orders of government to pick up the full cost of that, to pay the $10,000 a month in rent or more just because they, they need to do that for society. We've got to make sure that those costs are shared by society as a whole. Uh, and, and right now, there are, you know, I'm, I'm pleased to see that the federal government is starting to work on a rent support program. That's the next big piece of this that is desperately needed. Hope, when it comes to your husband's business, and we have about a minute and a half, uh, are his problems, his challenges, similar, identical, or somewhat different to yours? I'd say they were a little bit different. I mean, we've been conditioned over the last five years to streamline and ensure that the business was healthy and that we downscaled an awful lot. Um, Some of the challenges that we are having with his business, of course, is logistics. So um, making sure that we have one person in a hotel room, taking more trucks um, out to the job site, even something as simple as accessing hand sanitizer to ensure that I have one can of hand sanitizer in each of the vehicles, you know, was quite a challenge. So um, we're, we're expending a great deal of, of personal energy, and rightly so, to ensure the safety and well-being of our, of our employees as well as the employees on the sites that we're attending. So the, the, the problems are different, but the same. If you... Um if you don't have the money in the next four or five weeks, are you worried that both of your businesses might fail? I'm worried that one of them will, for sure, without a question. And the only thing that's keeping that business, and that's the garage business, um, as Dan alluded to, um, you know, we don't have a monthly rent because we do have a mortgage on the building, so we have had relief there. But I am worried. Um, that we won't um, get the wage subsidy or the loan soon enough um, to be able to maintain um, a consistent flow of work through the shop. Dan, uh, 30 seconds, please, overall. Uh, There are a few glimmers of hope here. The programs are starting to come on stream. Uh, The Canada Emergency Business Account, those loans are starting to flow, and the feds, to their credit, expanded the scope so more very small firms and medium-sized companies with payroll above a million can now get it. Uh, The wage subsidy monies will start to flow likely in early May. I'm hoping that we can have the majority of our small business community make it across the finish line. But for any business owner, please contact your, your provincial politicians and your federal politicians and make sure that they understand that the economic emergency that we're facing is in many respects almost as big as the healthcare emergency that, that all okay. Canadians are, are facing. I, uh, I'm glad to talk to my next guest because she is one of the Canadian heroes we have learned to, I think, more appreciate now than than maybe ever. Uh, that might be a stretch because we always appreciate them, but during this time, they're really front and center and and risking their lives for us, and uh, those are the doctors 
of uh, of Canada. And you know, I'm not excluding anybody from the from our list of heroes. We we know who you are, and we care about you. We're just at this point, we're talking about doctors and the concerned Ontario doctors. That's a an, uh, an organization you can find them online and on Twitter. They sent an extensive open letter to Justin Trudeau and Premier Ford of Ontario, detailing their deep concerns for physicians' safety for their patients, and demanding that Health Canada stop taking their marching orders from the World Health Organization and uh, endorse COVID-19 testing developed in Ontario, and of which millions of kits are being sold and used in the U.S. and U.K., for example, or at least base their decisions on science, not on the World Health Organization. Dr. Colvinder Carr is the co-founder of Concerned Doctors of Ontario. She joins us on the Chorus Radio Network. Dr. Carr, thank you very much for the time. It's good to talk to you again. Um, Canada's healthcare system uh, is at overcapacity even without the coronavirus pandemic, and you wrote about this and the challenges, these challenges in your open letter to the Prime Minister and the Premier. What do you identify as being possible now to improve the current healthcare reality? What can be done now to improve things? What has, what has to be done? Thank you so much for having me, Roy. Um, there are many concrete steps that um, both the Ontario and the Canadian government can um, undertake immediately that will help us um, to not only um, decrease the number of uh, people that are being infected and, and thus requiring hospitalizations, ICU admissions, and ultimately succumbing to death, but will also allow us uh, to start to ease the um, public health measures that are presently um, under place uh, to then hopefully help to um, start to open up our economy again. And um, the most crucial aspect for us on the front lines is trying to keep our patients safe and trying to save as many Canadians' lives as possible. And and it's becoming increasingly frustrating for us on the front lines, um, seeing day after day um, governments continuing uh, to avoid these concrete actions. And despite the evidence um, that exists that supports it. Um, so, when it comes to when it comes to testing, uh, the mass testing that needs to take place, you point out in the letter to the federal government that following the advice or positions of the World Health Organization, including not making use of COVID nineteen tests developed in Ontario and being widely used in the United States and the UK, with millions of test kits being sent outside of Canada. That is just one aspect of it, right? I mean, we have uh, an, we have the capacity, the ability to make decisions based on Canadian developments like this one and then put it to our use uh, and brings us back to the testing uh, issue, doesn't it? And, and these kits are being used by the millions in other parts of the world, these very same, these very same tests. Absolutely. We have um, some of the most brilliant scientists and physicians um, here, right here in, in Canada, and we're not listening uh, to those experts. Instead, um, policy decisions surrounding COVID-19 are being deferred to the World Health Organization, which it, it needs to be clearly pointed out, this is not a medical organization. So the World Health Organization is a political entity of the United Nations, and there's... Um, no accountability within that organization. Many of the leading officials there are appointed 
uh, by the very nations that have power within the United Nations. So uh, it, it's quite perplexing to us on the front lines why such crucial decisions impacting the death and, and the very lives of um, Canadians, millions and millions of Canadians, are being deferred to this political entity when when we have such amazing experts right here in Canada. Um, it's it's it very crucial to point out that the National um, a microbiology lab, which is oh, um, right here in Canada, has been on the forefront of infectious disease research. We have um, those test kits, which are the serology test kits, which help to identify um, possible immunity towards uh, um, um, oh, the virus that actually causes COVID-19 uh, being developed right here um, here in the province of Ontario. And we have uh, those kits being sold to the United States and other countries across the world, but they're not being approved for use by our very own Health Canada. And it's uh, very perplexing because um, just yesterday, the World Health Organization, again, this political entity, uh, released a statement which made global headlines that uh, that the serology testing, uh, that there's no evidence that, um, that it's able to identify immunity um, for the virus that causes COVID-19. Well, there's no evidence, there's no scientific evidence that it doesn't. Um, uh, uh, identify immunity either. So uh, there, there are all these claims that the World Health Organization continues to make, which are not backed by science. Uh, this is the same organization that claimed that there was no human-to-human transmission when medical journals were publishing that there was human-to-human transmission. This is the same organization that claimed that there was no asymptomatic transmission when medical journals were publishing that there was asymptomatic transmission. And now this is the same organization that's uh, oh that's claiming uh, that the serology tests are not able to identify immunity and that we have to continue with the current measures in place uh, until a vaccine is developed, mm-hmm. which, by the way, won't take uh, will take um, at a minimum 12 to 18 months. Well, that's absurd because um, evidence science shows us that uh, that there is always um, a, um, a immunological process that follows an, an infection and and based on that immuno, that immunological process these tests were then developed so it's just a matter of time before we're able to prove well. that that having those antibodies does confer um, does confer the immunity. Um, right now, what we don't know is how long that immunity is um, there for. So, so those right. are um, ongoing um, studies. But for the World Health Organization to claim that there's no evidence um, that it does confer immunity, it's just absurd because the more the more information the the, the the more the uh, the more I'm sorry, it's Dr. Gill. I I. I, sh- I I made a mess of your name, and I apologize, no. uh, Doctor Gill. It's it, the more information we have, the better off we are, I would think. Absolutely. And these tests are being used in the millions in the in the U.S. and U.K. But let me move on to another issue here. And I was I was shocked, surprised um, to, to 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 read this. Frontline doctors refuse testing uh, in in the province of Ontario. Was that now? That was very early on. Is that still going on? Um, testing is being heavily rationed in our province. Um, the biggest concern 
uh, is the lack of the nasal swabs which are needed to actually collect the sample to then perform the PCR test. Okay. Um, so now um, Health Canada about a week ago approved a new test, which is a point-of-care test, um, which hopefully those um, tests will be available on the front line soon. But presently, Ontario is um, uh, has the lowest per capita test. Okay. May I just ask you... country. Now we've got we've have so many things going on today simultaneously. Would you be able to just summarize for me in about uh, a minute or so what the fundamental message is that you're sending in the open letter from uh, concerned Ontario doctors to both the Prime Minister and the Premier of Ontario? The fundamental message is that we need to start listening to experts here in our country, and we need to start having a plan um, that is based on evidence. And and first and foremost, we need protection of front lines with personal protective equipment. We can't fight this battle unless our front lines is actually protected. Secondly, we need to have mass testing. There needs to be testing of everyone. Um, and, and thirdly, we need to start having um, approval of the serology testing so we can identify those people that have had the infection um, and are now possibly immune. Um, uh, we know that there's rapid transmission happening through okay. asymptomatic vectors, so we need to address that. Dr. Gill, I thank you for the time and thank you for what you do and being there for all of us. Thank you so much for having me, Roy. Take care. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.